Let's pray. Father, let me speak on behalf of your people. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from you. Do not deserve righteousness. We do not deserve blessings. We do not deserve any goodness from you. We don't deserve a loving spouse or great children or vehicles to get us around or homes to shelter us. We don't deserve the sunshine and we don't deserve the rain when we need it. We don't even deserve food or water. We don't deserve a job or income. We don't deserve a good church. We don't even deserve a bad church. We don't deserve ministries that we serve in. We don't deserve the gospel that we proclaim. We deserve, instead of all that good stuff that you give us, we deserve to die. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, though we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And it is because of him we praise you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. If you have your Bible, Colossians 3.16, that's our text. Colossians 3.16. We're going to talk about worship today. A healthy church worships. That's the point. Now, couldn't make that a lot longer. Um, a healthy church worships God. Uh, I think everybody worships something to some degree. Um, but a healthy church worships. We could say a lot about that. Um, a healthy church Worships. I don't think anyone here is going to say, you know, well, I don't agree with that. I don't think we should ever worship. I don't think anyone here is going to say that. We all agree a healthy church should worship. What I want to talk about is how a healthy church worships. But we need to clarify some things because worship is vital to the life of a believer. We need to define the word worship before we start talking about, talking about its role or understand its role in our Christian life. Biblically speaking, the word worship is living a sacrificially holy life in Christ. That's worship. And it shows up in multiple ways, and we get this from Romans 12.1, which says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, your life being a living sacrifice and holy life in Christ, that's worship. How does that show up in life? It shows up in your muse, it shows up in your praying, it shows up in studying, studying is worship, praying is worship, fellowship is worship, joy in your suffering is worship, and so on and so forth, and I could go on and on. But also, singing is worship. Music is worship. That's why music was created, for worship. Which is why when I hear secular artists who sing any song that doesn't glorify God, sometimes, depending if it's a song, I mean, the songs I liked as a kid are hard to not listen to and still enjoy. You know, and you think, oh, what's wrong with the good old oldies from the 70s? Like, you know, there, there was nothing bad about those songs. What about a love song to my wife? That's not about God. That can be somewhat God-honoring in the right way. It's about marriage. God made marriage. God loves marriage. You know what I mean? Like, so secular music, is it bad? Is it good? I don't really want to get into all that. I have really one primary point I want to get to today. But first, I just want us to see what worship is. And as we, as we move forward and talk about the word worship, 
We have to understand the word worship biblically means every form of worship, sacrificially living your life in the holiness of Christ. But today, if I use the word worship, I'm talking about music. Okay, so worship in music. Because music is a subsection of the bigger idea of worship. We are commanded to worship God. But it should never feel like, oh, I have to worship God. Okay? The command should never produce legalism. Like, I have to do this. I'm told I have to do it. I just got to do it. Okay? If you're getting baptized today and you're like, oh, I have to do this, that's not the right attitude. God wants your desire more than anything, right? And I don't think anyone getting baptized feels that way. Just to be clear, I've talked to all those people. They're excited too. Anyways, the, the, the product of worship, or I mean, what worship should produce is joy. And what joy should produce is worship, Amen. right? So because we love Jesus, we want to worship him. And because we're worshiping him, it makes us enjoy him more. And so what C.S. Lewis says is that, that, that praise is the pinnacle of joy. I mean, the more joy you have in God, as you climb the mountain of joy, when you get to the top, the highest point of joy, what do you do? I mean, you've seen the movies. Guys climb the mountains, right? And they get to the top, and they put their flag in the top, and they go like this, ah, I'm king of the world, or whatever they say. I don't know, maybe that was the movie Titanic. I don't know. The point is, you know, like they get to the top and like, victory, right? They have to proclaim. There's this pent-up excitement. I have achieved the greatest thing that humanity can achieve. And that greatest thing is joy in Christ. The enjoyment of God through Christ. And when you get to that pinnacle, you ought to be going, woo, right? And like more than that. So what do we do? We praise God. We express that joy in praise. And one of the best ways that humans can praise God is through song. So worship is the product of joy at its highest. And it is the expression of joy in God. You shouldn't be forced to do it. It should be like, I love God so much. He's so satisfying to me. I can't help but sing. Listen to this. I got it. I don't know about you. I knew what I was going to preach today, so I was like in the worship zone. We were singing, and I was just very, I think I'm a little emotional today. I'll just be honest with you. And when I say emotional, I mean like really, really excited, kind of giddy. And I told myself when I come up here, Mark, calm down, slow down, okay? Um, and I realized that when we were singing this song, and I just felt like screaming, yes, at the top of my lungs. When we sang, released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My life was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt, and he called me his friend. When death was arrested, and my life began. And then we started singing the chorus, and I'm like, I just like, I was like, I don't know. This is as high as my hands can go. Should I stand on a chair? I thought that might be a little distracting, so I just stuck to this. Music is a medicine to your soul. It is good. It's meant for worship. I don't think any of us are going to argue with that. But here's the question. If we know we should worship, if we know we should worship in music, corporately and personally, if your only worship of God in music is Sunday morning, you need to turn the radio on. Well, let me restate that. Don't turn the radio on. Pick good songs yourself. Make a playlist. Play them in your car on your way to work. Okay? Worship. If not, listen to a sermon. Listen to a good podcast. Fill your mind, your heart, your soul, everything with good, 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 godly worship. Whether it's a sermon or it's music, it's all worship. Okay, so, but I really believe that music is a cure for spiritual depression. 
Okay? And so what we are left with as a question, now that we believe and know and understand and probably all agree that music is good for us, we're meant to worship God, it's a product of joy, and it produces joy. We, we then have to ask the question, does it matter what we sing? That's the question I want to answer today. Does it matter what we sing? Colossians 3.16. Let me, let, me ask, let me ask this, state this question more precisely. Do the lyrics matter? Because if the question is, does it matter what kind of style we sing? Paul doesn't address that in this verse. And to be totally honest, God gives us, like, use every instrument. Like, he gives us a bunch of instruments. Tambourines, the lyre, which is like a guitar sort of. I mean, just use every instrument you have and make a new song. Okay? Make new songs. So we should be singing modern new songs, and we should be singing old traditional hymns, and we should be singing whatever's good lyrically. So I don't want to get into the debate or the question or the concept of what style matters most. I think style is way down on the list of important things because lyrics are more important. So Paul writes this in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So what's the primary drive for God in this text? What is God's desire? What is he going for in this text? Is his primary purpose that we would be teaching, that we would be admonishing each other, that we'd be singing songs, that we'd be thankful? Are those his purposes? They're not. This is his primary purpose. This is the goal that God has for you in this text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just dwell in you, but like the word richly there in Greek means abundantly. And abundance is an overwhelming amount of something that you can't contain. That's abundance. Abundance is having a barn full of so much Fruit and product from your harvest that the doors are busting open. That's abundance. That is how richly, how abundantly the word of God should be dwelling in you. You ever talk to people who like every conversation, every time you talk to them, they're just like, oh yeah, man, just like Isaiah 59, 14 says, and just like this, and oh, I was reading this text. It's like, dude, do you ever stop talking about the Bible? No, because the word of Christ dwells in me richly. Right? Like, I love those people. They're like, those are my people. I want to be around those people. I mean, talking about in every conversation is a little, like, you know, too much sometimes. But still, you know, like the people who are just so filled with the word of God that, like, they have a thought or an answer or a biblical response or a verse for, like, everything in life. You can spot them a mile away. They know the word of God. You can see it. You can hear it. It's, it, it, it's laced within all of their conversations. It comes out in their counsel. You can see it played out in their life. So this is the aim, that you would be so consumed with the word of God that it would just pour out of you. You'd be rich in God's word. So first things first, ask yourself, am I rich in God's word? And if you spend only five minutes a week in God's word, your answer to that question is no. You're not rich in God's word. If Sunday morning is the only time you get God's word, then the answer is no. You are not rich in God's word. But this is God's desire, that we would be rich in his word. That's the priority. So how, then, do we get rich in God's word? How does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Paul gives us a few ways for us to be saturated with the word of God. Number one, teaching. That's this. That's what we're doing right now. Or when we start life groups and there's teaching the Bible in those times. Or if the kids, you teenagers, you younger kids, all ages of kids, when you come to Kid Town on Wednesday nights, we're teaching you. That teaching is pouring the word of God into you. Those kids in children's church right now, they're being taught the word of God. We are pouring the word of God into them. This is what we're commanded to do so that the word of Christ would dwell into children richly. So that the word of Christ would dwell in all of us richly. The second way that we get the word 
word saturated is admonishing one another in all wisdom. And admonishment means to like warn or reprimand someone firmly. So think about it like this. You've got teaching, which is information. And what are you supposed to do with that information? Download it into your soul, heart, and mind and start living it, right? But what if there's a disconnect between the teaching and you living it? You've heard it. You've been taught it. You know it up here, but it's not showing up in your life. Then what do we do? We admonish one another. And we say, hey, dude, dude, dude. You heard last week how the sermon or the word of God says that you should do this. You're not doing this. I'm here to admonish you in love and in gentleness for the sake of my brother. I want to tell you, let it go from your head to your heart to your hands. That's how teaching goes from here to here to here. Through admonishment. It keeps us in check. So that we're not just a bunch of theologians who get together and talk about the Bible. But we are the living organism of the body of Christ that acts as his body. Now there's a third way that the word of Christ would dwell richly in you. And that is this. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Which tells us that worship music is not just a spiritual or religious activity that we perform in church because that's what we've done for 2,000 years. That is not why we do it. Worship and music is primarily supposed to be a means by which we receive and express the truth of God from his word. That is what Paul is saying. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How, Paul? Sing songs about God. So if the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, then let me ask you, I'm sorry. If the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly through singing songs, then do the words in those songs matter? They do. They matter significantly. So there are four truths about music that we're going to look at for the rest of the sermon. Truth number one, and I think each of these truths, this is kind of like a progressive development. As, as we progress, you kind of see this whole idea of the importance of lyrics unfold throughout Scripture. Truth number one, music is a heart softener. Music is a heart softener. Why did God create music? Okay, obvious answer, for his glory and our expression of joy in him, totally. But other than that, why did God create music? I think he created music to soften your heart. I think he created music because music promotes an emotional response. I just read you those words, and while I was singing those words, I was telling you how excited I was, and how I just wanted to like stand on a chair and be like, yeah! And then when I brought them up here and I started reading, reading them to you, I started to get a little choked up. I'm like, this is so good! This is the gospel, these are lyrics that we can sing about our God. Like, it, music is meant to produce an emotion. If you sing worship music on Sunday morning with us, and you're like, this and what you're showing right here is how you feel inside, just sit down. I mean, just, <laughs> why even pretend? Just sit down. There was one time, and I'll just tell you a quick story. There was one time I went to a pastor's conference with our elders. I was talking with Shane. I told Shane, dude, we're gathered in this room with Thousands of men. I don't know if you've ever heard a thousand, thousands of men rejoicing in the, to the name of Jesus together. Whoa! It's awesome. It's like, it's like a chorus of angels. Okay? I think women have way more beautiful voices than men. But the power that comes in the strong vocal expression of thousands of men together producing the praise of Jesus is an emotional thing. And I stood there during that conference like this. I have nothing, no heart. I wasn't in it. I couldn't even pretend anymore. I just wasn't there. I told Shane about it. Shane goes, you know what you should do? Sit down, close your eyes. Don't worry about where you're at. Just absorb. Just let, just soak in the worship. That's all you can do anyways. Why try? I was like, dude, that was like the wisest thing I've ever heard. It was so good. And I tried it. And it kind of worked. <laughs> It worked a little bit for sure. It was way better than me standing there being like, blah, blah, blah. I don't mean any of this. 
That's just where I was at that day. We, we can't just be numb to music. It should be an emotional response. Music serves as a means to soften our hearts to the truth. That's its purpose. Other than its primary purpose to glorify God and magnify Christ and bring us joy, our expressions of joy in God, it primarily serves then to soften your heart through the combination of a progression of chords and the use of various instruments and melodies and harmonies and combination of all of those things and unique manners. And, and all of this is a great tool that is meant to soften your soul to a truth. Psalm 40 verse 3 says, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Cool, yeah, it's nice. What does that produce? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The song of praise to God leads people to trust in God for salvation because music is a palatable way to receive truth because it provokes emotions and stirs affections. That's good. It's meant to do that. If music brings you to your knees, that's okay. Listen, this is why teenage girls who break up with their boyfriends sit in their room and turn on the saddest music they can think of and cry on their bed. They, they know that, that. I think they do that. I, they do it in the movies. I don't know. <laughs> I went to VCS to do chapel, and I've got all these little children, and I was telling all the boys about all the cool things that boys like to do, and then I got to the girls. like, I don't, what do girls play with dolls? And they're all like, no. We don't do that anymore. I was like, then I don't know. So anyways, um, the point is that the reason people do that, when they're sad, they listen to sad music. When they're excited, they listen to jacked up cool music that gets them all excited. Because we know that music is an emotional stir. We know it's going to produce an affection response. We know that that's what it serves. We, we all believe that, whether we've ever admitted it or not. And the reason it was made that way is not so you could mourn the loss of your boyfriend breaking up with you. It is so that you could worship God with more than just your mind, but with your heart and with your emotions. However, we need to be careful then. Because of the nature of music being a heart softener, Music can also then numb us and desensitize us to the truth or desensitize us to false teaching. The music is so good that it just is, it's a smooth, greasy highway that lets a lie slide right into your tongue and out of your mouth and into your head and into your heart. And you're sitting there going, oh, I love this song. And you're proclaiming lies about God. That is why every word in our music matters. Every song we sing together in worship, whether it's by ourselves or with our families or corporately or whatever, all of it, every word matters. Every word in every secular song, every word in every worship song, even more specifically in worship music. Because worship music is intended, intended to be worship. So it has an even greater calling to be accurate. When a non-believer sings a non-worship song, I expect that. When a Christian writes a worship song and it's wrong, I do not accept that. As I go on, I think we're going to start building up this feeling. Some of you might, maybe, I don't know. Going, dude, you are just a little too serious about lyrics. Like a little nitpicky, don't you think? Where's the grace, man? Where's the just, yeah, it's not a big deal. You're being really, eh. A little too formal about something that's supposed to be loose and free and spirit-filled. I'll get to that. Maybe you weren't thinking that. I just made you think it. <laughs> so now I need to answer it. But just give me a second. Everything in this world has been corrupted by sin. Everything, including music. But also, everything, including music, is also still has beauty and honor and power. That's what music has. It's beautiful. It honors God. It's powerful. 
It works. So we must be exceptionally and exceptionally particular and incredibly attentive to the details of every song we choose to sing corporately. Especially when that song is about God. And it is vital that we are sure that the songs we sing properly declare the truths of God only found in Scripture. Number two. Truth number two. Music has intention. So I hope what you get now is where I'm going. The point is music, as far as music goes, worshiping God, lyrics matter. So I want to start defending that for you even more. Music has intentions. That's the second truth. There is this common belief in the church, and I don't know why, I do know why this exists. It exists because people operate under grace more than righteousness. There is this proclamation in the church that grace, 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 we can kind of do whatever we want. We can just go ahead and get it wrong. It's okay. It's not okay. You want to know why it's not okay? Because grace is not an opportunity to continue in ignorance. That's total foolishness. Where people go, oh, where's the grace? Mark, you're being too, too retentive about and, and too picky about all this lyric stuff. Just let us sing. We know what they mean. We know, we, we know the truth. Just let us kind of freely worship. No, grace was not meant to let you stay ignorant to truth. Grace is not a means by which you can continue to sin. Grace is the vehicle that gives you righteousness and that righteousness, which is the mind of Christ, is the means by which we can say we will only declare truth. This is because of grace, I will be even less comfortable and freely worshiping God the wrong way. Because of grace, I will be stricter and more biblical. That's what grace does. So to, this, to anyone who has this feeling, this built-up feeling like, man, you're just being a little too, a little too much, man. Just kind of let it go. There's just a song. We're not out here saying Jesus isn't God. Dude, just relax. The things you care about are nitpicky. You'd be surprised. You look at worship music today, how much of it is not right. It's all over the place. So this whole, where's the grace, man? That argument, that doesn't fly. Because my response is, it is because of grace. It's because of grace that I say these things. It's because of grace that God has given us the mind of Christ to see this, to say it, and to hold the church to truth in the lyrics of the music we sing. So, for some reason, and I think it's because of this, hey man, where's the grace, that kind of perspective, that somehow in the church, musicians who create worship music are somehow released from the accountability to sound doctrine in music. And I don't know why, other than people are just going, ah, it's okay. You know why? Here's why. Because universally, I'm not going to say the church, because those are God's people. So universally, people who go to church don't know truth. Most of them don't. I think I would be willing to bet that a majority of people who attend Sunday morning services in America, just say in America, a majority are probably not saved. There's no stat on that. I don't know. I'm just looking at the culture in general, and I'm going, and that might be a little harsh. Maybe it's less than a majority. Still, the point is, it's probably a significant number that would probably surprise us. So I think there's a lot of people, and then there's, in, those church, in the church, universally, there are a lot of Christians, genuine believers, who are saved, who are ignorant to the importance of truth, and don't know the truth. So then these songs come out by Christian artists that are bad, and are filled with lies, or have not true things in them, and the Christians who don't know God's word very well, and the non-Christians who go to church don't spot the lie, and they just sing it. Why do they sing it? Because music softens their heart. It's palatable. This song is great. It's so good. I love this song. And we just sing it, and you're like, hold on, the lyrics are bad. Oh, dude, where's the grace? Chill out. And so Christian artists get a free pass. They don't have to be doctrinally sound. Is that true? I don't think so. 
If that were true, then Paul wouldn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Music has an intention. Because I think a lot of people look at these Christian artists and go, well, they may have said this, but I think they meant it kind of like this. Like, I knew what they kind of meant. Their intentions were good. They're not trying to deceive us. They're not heretics and false teachers. They just, they meant it good, and it's not that big of a deal. Let's just kind of not be bothered by it. The lyrics aren't biblical, but I, I know what they meant, so let's just ignore it. What if I did that? What if I stood here and preached to you and said, Jesus isn't God. And then I defended it, or tried to defend it, biblically. You'd be like, oh, question, <laughs> why are you our pastor? Right? That would be, I would expect you to question that. Why do we accept it in music then? Why would we accept it? Why would we proclaim something through song together, approve it vocally, and then reject it at the pulpit? I'm actually going to answer that in a minute. Good intentions by the artist who wrote the song Good intentions, but bad lyrics are not an excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse. If you get pulled over and the cop says to you, do you know how fast you're going? You say, yeah, I was going 35. And he goes, do you know the speed limit? You go, no, I didn't see a speed limit sign at all. And I was looking for one and I didn't see it. That's not my fault. There's no post-it. Since, since I turned onto this road, I haven't seen a speed limit sign. That's not my fault. He's going to go, I don't care if you know it or not. You are held responsible for knowing. You probably learned that this kind of neighborhood requires a certain speed when you were back in driver's ed 30 years ago. And if you forgot, too bad, brother. You're getting a ticket. Ignorance is never an excuse. It will never fly in the court of law, and it ain't going to fly with God. Writing untrue things about God into songs for millions of Christians to sing is sin, even if it's unintentional. Intentions are not more valid than truth. Intentions of the artist do not... Listen to this. This is huge. The intentions of the artist who writes the song do not supersede God's intentions for music. And God's intention for music is this, that the word of Christ would dwell richly in you. So God has an intention for music, that it would be so true and so filled with so many true lyrics that through the music, it would be a moment that produces the word of Christ to dwell richly in you. If the artist who wrote the song, his intentions are good, but the lyrics are bad, his Intentions supersedes God's. God says, too bad, buddy. My intention is that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly. Your lyrics don't do that because they're not true. So that means the word of God can't dwell in you. So your intentions are irrelevant. Don't sing that song. Let me give you an example. Man, did I pray over this. I'm going to bash a song right now, okay? <laughs> it's probably a song... Many of you know, have heard, and sang along to, and you probably love it, and maybe you've never thought about it. Some of you have. The song is Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. The song goes, should I sing it or just say it? I heard a lot of sing it. I'm worried about the discernment that is in this room and the, and the massive lack of wisdom in this no. Um, I'm going to say it. <laughs> oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, I like where this is going, love of God. Good lyrics, right? Totally, they are. I'm not tricking you. They are good lyrics. But that's not the lyrics of the song. These are the lyrics of the song. You probably know them. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Regardless of Corey Asbury's intentions, which now we have determined are irrelevant. And by the way, I watched a video, an interview with him, and he doubled down on these lyrics and said, I absolutely, 100% meant to say reckless. 
And I'm like, yikes. We will never sing your music. I can't trust that man. I, I'm, I don't, now he's not a heretic. I'm not saying he's a heretic. He's, he, I heard his testimony. He looks like a Christian to me. He's probably a brother in Christ, and I want to love him well, but I won't sing his music. In his song, he defines the character of God as reckless. And I have heard people defend this song and say that when they sing it, they're just a couple things. Number one, there's tons of good lyrics in this song. Tons of good lyrics. So I'm just going to focus on the good ones and not worry about the bad ones. Okay? That doesn't make sense. Um, if, and, and I'll tell you why that doesn't make sense. If you, say to your, if you say that the song is filled with so many other true things about God that it's worth singing, then my response is, well, yeah, so is every single sermon that has ever been preached by a false teacher or heretic. Every sermon by a heretic is probably 95% true, except for like the really, really blatantly bad ones. 5% lie. Why? Because that's the only way we're going to believe it shrouded in truth, and we go, oh, it's so good. I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I can't get rid of the good stuff just because there's a little bit of bad in it. Fine. In life, that applies on so many levels. Right? Am I going to burn my house down just because I got a leaky faucet? No! Right? I'm going to deal with it. Okay? So, yeah, this doesn't apply to life, but it does apply to God and to worship and to his word. The problem with this song is that God is not reckless. God cannot be reckless. Recklessness requires a lack of control. Recklessness requires a lack of moral compass because it puts people in unnecessary danger. If I got in my car and started driving circles around the, the parking lot with children and wandering around the parking lot and cars are still there and I've got the windows open and I'm going, Whipping donuts around everybody going, yeah! You guys would be like, he's a reckless man. Would you say that about your God? Never. Why? Because recklessness requires risk. Without risk, can't be reckless. And a sovereign God can have no risk. God never faces risk. Ever. He can't. He can't because he causes everything. He's in control of all things. His sovereignty demands that there's no possibility of risk. Because if God is risking something in order to be reckless, he's going to go, oh, I hope this works. That's not a sovereign God. It's definitely not the God of the Bible. Jeez, Mark, chill out, man. It's just one word and one song. The rest of the song is so good. Have you guys heard that song? It is so catchy. All week, I got in my car and I'm like, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending wreck. No! Stop! Bad. I almost said it out loud, right? Like, it is so... I did sing it, didn't I? So, it is such a catchy song. It's so good. And that is why it's dangerous. Full of truth. Look at the rest of the lyrics. Good lyrics. When I was, it's very gospel-centered. When I was running from you, you chased after me. When, I don't remember exactly how they go, but the idea is like, when I didn't deserve you, you, you gave me yourself. When, when I wasn't after you, you came after me. Like, you climb a mountain from me. You tear down a wall from me. Like, I'm like, yeah, yes, yes, true, true, true. Great song and awesome music. Yes, oh, the reckless love. No! Not that one piece that changes the entire nature of our God. Jeez, Mark, relax. It's just one word that changes the entire perception of the sovereignty of God, which is the one doctrine that is killing the church today. It's a total lack of understanding about the sovereign nature of God, and that song is a big part of it. I'm sorry. I'm making it sound like that song is the reason. It's not. It's just one of the many things that contributes to it. 
So I hate to pick on Corey Asbury. I'm sure he's a Christian. I don't really know. He looks like a godly man. But he doubled down, and I'm going to double back and say, no, that is, that's not good enough. That's not, and I'll tell you why it's not good enough. Truth number three, music was created for truth. Okay, when we worship God, we're singing about our God. We sing, and when we sing untrue things about God, we're defaming his character through music, which is created to promote the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, right? The only way to increase your joy in God, listen, the only way to increase your joy in God is to praise him properly. And proper praise is only done in truth. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship God if your worship is not based on truth or is proclaiming truth, meaning the words you use in, in music to worship God must be true, or it's not worship. You ever think about that? If you sing the song and mean it with all your heart that God has reckless love, that God is reckless, here's the problem. He's not reckless. So if you're singing, God, you're reckless, God's over here going, I don't know who you're talking to, but it ain't me. Who are you worshiping? Because it's not God. Yikes! Have you ever thought about that? That's a terrifying reality. How many times have we committed adult, I, I, I'm sorry, idolatry, not adultery. <laughs> Oops, it just happened. No, like, um, idolatry without even knowing it. Because you're singing or saying something that's untrue about God, worshiping God falsely, and you don't even know it. Okay, now in those moments, don't worry, don't fret. God's like, man, this is, this is what grace is for. To cover your sin. To cover your inability to even know that that was a lie. But I know you still love me. You were ignorant. You didn't know you were speaking or singing an untrue thing. It's okay. I got you. That's what grace is for. But now that grace, I'm going to pump it into your heart so you can become aware of truth. So you can worship me properly. And proper worship is worship in truth. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. If that's it, then all you got to do is say, come, Lord Jesus, to all who call on him in truth. Come to me, Lord of the flies, God who is fat and lazy. Come help me. Is that going to produce God in my life? No, it's a lie. It's not who he is. I don't know who you're talking to, but I'm not fat and lazy. God does not draw near to you in worship if it's not truth. We cannot expect God to be glorified in our worship when we're singing songs with untrue lyrics. God's not honored in them. If I went to my wife and said, hey, wife, I wrote you a song. You're going to love it. The title of the song is my... <laughs> a lot of adjectives I could use here. I'm just going to stick to what's on paper. That's what I'm going to do. All right. So I'm going to read now. Thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> I wrote you a song, wife. The song is titled, My Seven-Foot-Tall Wife. Do you think she's going to be like, oh, because I'm seven feet tall? She's going to be like, why? That makes no sense. I'm 5'6". That's not about me. Like, yo, but, you know, whatever. It's the thought that counts, right? So I got your height wrong. The song's all about her height. Oh, I love looking up to you. I love to tie your shoes. I love how you can reach the top of the cabinet or whatever. She would be like, none of this is true about me. That wouldn't honor her. It would honor her if I was like, you're artistic, you're beautiful. I love your purple hair. Um, I love everything about you. And I start naming off all her characteristics and all of her attributes. And she'd be like, oh, you do love me because they're true. Right? Is that how important that is? That's what worship is. God wants it to be true. But it doesn't matter if it's not totally accurate because it's the thought that counts. No, it's not the thought that counts. If it were the thought that counts, 
then Hitler would be right. His intentions were good according to him. We would all agree his intentions were not good at all. And he followed through with them, so he didn't do anything good, and we all agree. But he thought they were good. Christian artists who write untrue things about God, even if their intentions are good, they're not trying to be. I'm not saying every Christian song written by a Christian artist that has an untrue word in it is a heretic or a false teacher or a false prophet or something. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying people get it wrong. I've been wrong at the pulpit, and I get checked by godly men who go, that was wrong, and then I fix it. It's not the thought that counts. It's the lyrics that count. And let me explain why. If, when it comes to music and worshiping God, the stakes are high. And they're high because God sets the stakes high. God sets the standard high. That's his rule. God made rules, and when God makes rules, we have to follow him. If, put it to you like this. You're in a poker game. You have... Um, uh, Two, you have five cards in your hands. A two, three, four, five, and a seven. If you don't have a straight, you look at your hand and go, ooh, I got a straight. Bet all your money. And then the hand shows and you put your hand and you go, ha, straight. And they go, dude, you don't have a straight. And you're like, oh, oh, it's a seven. I thought I had a straight. I got confused. Hey, guys, it's the thought that counts though, right? Come on, just give me the money. They're going, no, 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 no. You lost. Why? Why did you lose? Because there are rules established by an authority on how the game is played. God is a greater authority with greater standards and higher stakes, and he has rules about how he's worshipped, and the rule is it must be in truth. So, where there are clearly communicated rules and intentions, the intentions of us and the thought does not count. What counts is the truth. Because God has established clear lines and rules. Truth number four. Final truth. Music is a teacher. Music is a teacher. This is why it's important. Being doctrinally sound is not just for the pulpit. In Colossians 3.16, when Paul gives teaching and admonishing and music, he gives all of them the same value to produce the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And if, if that means, what that means is, whether it's teaching or admonishing one another or singing songs, what matters is that they are filled with truth so that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly, which means the lyrics in our music the admonishing we do to one another and the teaching from the pulpit or in any teaching ministry has to be filled with truth. And if you think that that is just too strict and too lack of grace, just being legalistic, there's no grace, it's so legalistic. It's not legalism. Grace was meant to produce the mind of Christ that says this isn't legalism, this is worship done right in truth. And we care about it. Now, I don't understand why we are so passive with music, but we're so stingy and tight with the preachers. When Paul gives music, lyrics, and the pulpit and the teacher equal responsibility to the truth. So we need to be very attentive that we stand firm on truth in our music because God clearly tells us that music is just as vital to proclaiming truth as the teaching. In fact, I would add that music can be even more effective teacher in some situations because of its nature to soften our hearts and ease our minds and, and even weaken our discernment or just soften the heart and heart that is resistant to God. Music just kind of goes, melt away, hard heart. And we pour truth into that soft heart. Which is why we have to protect it. So that truth that comes in, not lies. So because music is a teacher, and your shepherds in this church, your elders, your teachers, your pastors, are held to a high standard of promoting sound doctrine, 
right? And are, we're also held to a high standard of removing false doctrine. Because of that high standard, your shepherds have the God-given responsibility to uphold the purity of God and his gospel in our worship music. That's our job. We won't be perfect. Some lyrics will slip through the cracks. We will miss them. There will be mistakes made. And we'll go, please give us grace, but don't ever keep your mouth quiet about it. Bring those bad lyrics to us. Make us aware. Let's talk it out. Admonish us so that we are letting the word of Christ dwell richly in each other. That is what shepherds are supposed to do. Protect the pen. Stand guard. Watch out for wolves. Wolves are easy to spot. They don't look anything like sheep. But a wolf in sheep's clothing? Much harder to notice. Therefore, the shepherds need to be even more scrutinous and nitpicky about the lyrics to ensure that it's not a wolf. So let me wrap up these four truths. What does this mean to your daily life? Your elders cannot hold your hand every day. We can't be there through everything you do. This is not just about a healthy church using biblical songs in corporate worship together. That's our responsibility as leaders. That's on Lon. That's on me. That's on Brian. That's on Christian. That's our job. Not job in a sense. Our calling. That's our responsibility. If you notice bad lyrics, it's your responsibility to admonish us, to come to us and say, that was not right. Or bring it to our attention. Remember, all admonishment is done in love and gentleness. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Please don't yell at me. Okay, so, um, but we can't be with you all day. And we don't determine what's on Christian radio. And we don't decide what songs you listen to. So you have to have your own discernment. And you should be worshiping alone and with your family or whatever. You should be worshiping in music when you're not here on Sundays. That should be part of your life. I don't know about you guys, but it doesn't have to be boring. You don't have to like make it, you know, like, let's all stand together in a straight line and sing a worship song at home. Pastor Mark said we got to sing worship. You know what we do at our house? We jack up the music, and we have a dance party, and I am not kidding you. It happens all the time. And me and my boys just boogie down in the living room to all kinds of great music, okay? And have fun with it. Worship God. Make sure it's true. You need to be sharp and discerning when it comes to music. Music is a tool that God has given you that can easily stir up your emotions. Because emotions, you've got to be careful because emotions are liars. Your emotions can lie to you. So we have to be careful to use this tool, this tool in a way that stirs our affections for God through truth. So protect the truth. Protect your heart. And preserve the purity of the gospel and the truth of God by discerning lyrics that you sing when you use his beautiful gift of music, which is meant for his glory. And his glory can only be manifested in truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Your, your word is true. Let it show up in our speech, in our songs, and in everything we do. We love you. Pray you would bless your people. Give us discernment as we go. In Jesus' name.